Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The United States makes no apology. And I make no apology since I wrote it for the... Uh, legislation you're talking about. Let me tell you that we will never urge the Ukrainians to make a compromise which will not be acceptable for them. There needs to be an understanding of the brutalization of the country that is quite simply barbaric. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Congressmen never had to intervene if the railroads were uh, good actors here. There's no clearer example of corporate greed than what we see in the rail industry today. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's up to Kiev when the war ends. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as President Biden hosts a state visit with French President Emmanuel Macron. On the menu, critical talks about Ukraine funding, why the Inflation Reduction Act did not include our European allies, and a couple hundred live lobsters to boot on their way to the state dinner now. A rail strike will be averted, but legislation to provide a week of sick time to rail workers just failed. We'll talk about the political fallout with Bloomberg congressional reporter Emily Wilkins. Michael O'Hanlon with us as well, senior fellow director of research and foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. And our panel is in place. Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg politics contributor, Democratic analyst, and Lester Munson, Republican strategist. They rolled out the red carpet today at the White House for French President Emmanuel Macron. Big state visit with all the trappings. This is something we are very good at around here. Huh? And it all culminates tonight with President Biden's first state dinner. First state dinner since COVID which could not possibly be as good as the private meal the Biden shared with Macron and his wife last night at Fiola Mare. But that's just me. The big arrival ceremony took place on a chilly South Lawn this morning. President Macron and Brigitte, members of the French delegation, distinguished guests, it's an honor, a genuine honor to host you for the first state visit of my administration. But before the lobster is served and before the toast tonight, the clinking of glasses... There was business to be had, uh, an extended meeting in the Oval Office this after dinner again last night, much of that meeting centering around the war in Ukraine, a conversation that extended into the East Room, where the two later held a joint news conference. President Biden speaking to the media here, speaking to reporters, asked whether he had any plans to meet with Vladimir Putin. I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin 
if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he wants, has in mind. He hasn't done that yet. In the meantime, I think it's absolutely critical what Emmanuel said. We must support the Ukrainian people. And that includes more than weapons, as Ukraine is now asking for high-voltage generators and transformers to help get through winter. Six million people have no power right now. Six million people. The headline on the terminal. Joining us with his view now, Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. Michael, it's always great to have you. Welcome back. Does, does this mean you're not on your way to the state dinner tonight, if you're talking to me? <laughs> you, you got me right. You well, got me I, that, figured out. That makes me a lucky guy here, uh, along with our listeners. Uh, we know that Kevin McCarthy says no more blank checks. We know that members of the progressive left and the, the far right are concerned if not in full opposition to spending more money on Ukraine. I think it was Matt Gates who said not one more dollar will be approved. How difficult is it going to be for President Biden to keep up his end of the bargain on funding much of this war? You know, it's a great question. I'm not sure I take anything too literally at this moment. Uh, for one thing, people have been able to say what Congressman Gates just said for the last few months, if they found it politically useful, knowing that the bills would pass anyway. I don't know that many Republicans, even of the more pro-Trump wing, who really want to see Russia win this war. Mm -hmm. And so if they were in a position where either in real terms or even politically in perceptual terms, they were seen as pulling out the plug from President Zelensky, probably about to become Times Man of the Year in a couple of weeks, and yeah, right. the Ukrainian people that we all so admire. Uh, I don't think that's either ethical or strategic or mm -hmm. politically smart. So. So that sounds like bluster to you and the idea that, you know, yeah. the, the, the Biden White House was somehow funneling money to other stuff uh, but, doesn't see the light of day. Uh, yes, but two buts. First of all, they won't mind complicating Biden's life, making okay. him work harder for a policy they can probably already live with. And I'm not talking about the whole Republican caucus. I just sure. see certain elements. And then secondly, yeah. there is a legitimate policy question. If we get into, let's say, late spring and summer of 2023. And let's say the battle lines aren't moving so much. and It looks like a stalemate. And we hear some hints from Putin that he might negotiate, you know, following up on your quote there of President Biden. And it seems like the Ukrainians wanting to get back that last chunk of territory they haven't yet, hypothetically, at this moment, six months from now, mm -hmm. want to keep fighting. But the rest of the world is ready to wind this thing down and, you know, give Ukraine some good, solid security guarantees some, or at least commitments and, and help okay. some, some reconstruction aid and then just ask them to you know, let Russia have Crimea. I mean, I'm, hypothetically, is that really a world where our best option is to just keep giving the Ukrainians whatever weaponry they need for as long as they want? I, I think at that point, you could have a good policy debate about what's in the American interest and should we be trying to coax Ukraine to the negotiating table in a way that we aren't quite yet. The two presidents clearly spoke about a possible endgame, among other things, in their meeting. And I say that because they both touched on this in the way they separately answered questions about Ukraine. Uh, you already heard Joe Biden. Here's, here's President Macron. Let me tell you that we will never urge the Ukrainians to make a compromise which will not be acceptable for them. Because they are so brave and they defend precisely their lives, their nation and our principles. And because it will never build a sustainable peace. If we want a sustainable peace, we have to respect the Ukrainians to decide the moment and the conditions in which they will hmm. negotiate 
about their territory and their future. It's almost like they can feel the calls to end this, Michael, or are they actually hearing them? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, It is interesting they both talked about this. I wouldn't necessarily have predicted that, although maybe once one talked about it, the other felt the need to chime in and give his two cents. So, uh, you know, but it it does raise these interesting questions because the Republican-led House is going to be asking some of them, too. And so it's on people's minds, and it's a fair question at some level. You know, and I'm not sure that President Macron is completely right that the only only sort of stabilizing way to get a peace deal is to make sure Ukraine gets everything at once. I think you also have to ask, you know, in some of the parts of Ukraine, like Crimea, that are primarily Russian speaking or at least largely Russian speaking, is there some kind of, let's say, a shared sovereignty or a local Mm -hmm. self-governance deal? Uh, And I'm not proposing this now. But again, it's six months from now. The battle lines aren't moving. We're in a stalemate. It looks like World War One. And we just want to reinforce failure. Is that really the best uh, strategy for us at that moment? So I think what they're saying today is right for today, but it may not be right in six months. Did the Biden administration make the right call in, in choosing the French to invite here first? I don't have any problem with that. I mean, we have some repair work to do in that relationship after the submarine deal with Australia last summer. And, uh, you know, and I I think President The French are more fun to party with, right? I mean, come on. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. Didn't invite the Germans over here. Yeah. And like, you know, right, with the Germans and the British also, they're, you know, new governments and and not leaders who are as well established. And Macron's been at this a while, even though he's a young man. And, um, you know, he made some pretty valiant efforts, in my mind, to try to prevent this war. Did some nice eleventh hour diplomacy, even though it ultimately failed. True enough. So, um, yeah, I have no, I have no problem with having him be uh, the first, uh, you know, beneficiary of this kindness from the president. Yeah, right. He also seems to fancy himself kind of the new spokesman for the EU, uh, following Angela Merkel. Michael, it's great to have you, uh, Michael O'Hanlon. Come back soon, F- senior fellow, director of research foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. Uh, we needed some smart analysis on a day like this, and great to have. Michael O'Hanlon here. Let's assemble the panel uh, for a quick view, for their quick view on this. Jeannie Shanzano is here, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst, joined by Republican strategist Lester Munson, principal at government relations firm BGR Group. He's a former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So we've got geopolitics on our minds here today, Jeannie. Uh, Joe Biden clearly put the time in today with Emmanuel Macron, knowing that there was a little tension going into this meeting. It was the submarine deal, as Michael mentioned. It was concerns about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and how that plays in Europe. And we'll get to all of that. When it comes to Ukraine, was this an important meeting to kind of reset the table on this here in Washington? Yeah, I think so. And I think to your point, the last point you were just talking about, President Macron is, you know, increasingly the spokesperson for Europe. And he is trying to implore Joe Biden and the American public to understand that they are much closer to the situation. And as we approach winter, to your point, six million people in Ukraine without power, the impact on it's incredible. The impact on Europe with the energy crisis is real. and, And he's here to make that point, amongst many other things, obviously. Lester, how did they do today uh, on the world stage that there was an audience here in Washington for it? There was also an international one. Well, I think it's always terrific when Americans uh, and the French collaborate. I think that's uh, kind of how we won the Revolutionary War. So there's a pretty good track record here. Uh, I do more seriously. I think it was nice to see uh, Biden and Macron be closer together on what they're saying about Ukraine. Uh, you know, nine months ago, the the French were in a different place and were taking a different approach to the pending conflict. Uh, 
uh, one that we didn't really agree with. It's nice to see them much closer and showing a, a, a unified front here or, or pretty close to a unified front. Uh, we'll keep the panel with us here. Uh, stay right where you are. Lester Munson and Jeannie Shanzano with us on the fastest hour in politics. This is Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, right here on Bloomberg. Did you hear President Biden try to speak French today, by the way? I mean, it's just part of the job on a day like this. The wellspring of our strength is a shared commitment to liberty and justice for all. That's right. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. I hope my father's not listening. <laughs> it's just, you know, you're standing right next to the guy. You're going to go for it like that. All right, so how about this Inflation Reduction Act? Did you know the French were upset about this? Not just the French, they're kind of upset all over Europe because these EV tax credits only apply to cars made in North America. How about that? We'll talk about that with our panel next because I think we did figure that out as well. After the meeting today, this is why sometimes, even in the age of COVID, you got to get together in the same room. Hey, the rail strike's been averted, but the sick time, not so much. We'll talk a little bit later on this hour with Emily Wilkins from Capitol Hill. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, say your prayers for the 200 live lobsters waiting to go into the drink right now at the White House. Did you hear this is actually the menu at the state dinner is being protested. Uh, by Oceana, a conservation advocacy group, pointing out the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch and the Marine Stewardship Council have encouraged people to avoid Maine lobster. 
because of the threat fishing practices have on endangered North Atlantic right whales. That's why you can't buy them at Whole Foods anymore. My God, if they ever came to my house when I was a kid, or now, we'd be in jail. So butter poached Maine lobster. This is quite a menu here. Delicata squash raviolo with tarragon sauce, American caviar, calotte of beef with a red wine reduction. Three to four hundred people in a heated tent on the South Lawn being served all of this tonight, including, I had to laugh earlier, uh, American artisanal cheeses. I said they're really they're serving the French American cheese, but no, it includes uh, what is known as the the greatest U.S. cheese ever. I never heard of it. Oregon's Rogue River Blue, the first U.S. cheese to win the World Cheese Awards. I could go on all night. It's a state dinner. Let's reassemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson are here. You feel bad for the, the lobster, Jeannie? I do. You know, you're making me very hungry with this menu. And and Joe Matthew, I was saying I thought the most beautiful thing was the gift that the Macrones gave to the Bidens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I'm scared to discuss it with you because it's a name (laughs) of a French film. And my my French is far worse than Joe Biden's. I actually thought he was pretty good. So I won't try to say it. But it's the movie that the Bidens saw on their first date. Right. Yes. And I know you could say it being Joe Matthew. I I won't attempt it. Irish it. Italian, I won't attempt it. That's what that is actually what we needed. Christine, get the name of that movie. That's what we were looking for. Was a gift I'll, I'll send hang it on, to you, I'll but I won't right, say yeah, it. Or, or throw it. Yeah, send it to me. Do this in a second here. Lester, uh, the, the, the other serious point of conversation, uh, unless you want to weigh in on the lobsters, uh, was uh, the double zoot. <laughs> zoot d'alore. The Inflation d'alore. Reduction Act has, and part of the reason why it was passed it is, is it has tax. Uh, deductions for EVs, but they have to be made in North America. This upset the Europeans, and apparently, you know, they had to talk this out today. The president was asked about it early on by a French reporter. The United States makes no apology, and I make no apology since I wrote it for the the legislation you're talking about. But there are occasions when you write a massive piece of legislation, and that has almost... $368 $368 billion for the largest investment in climate change on all, of all of history. And so there's obviously going to be glitches in it and need to reconcile changes. And apparently they are going to do that, Lester. Are we in a world in which this they're going to rewrite a portion of this law? There's going to be an amendment or something here to, to make it clear that economic allies of ours are exempt. Well, if I understand the message of President Macron correctly, it's you can't subsidize your industry. Only we can subsidize our industry. Uh, This is something Europe has been doing for decades. Uh, I don't really like it when the Europeans do it. I don't really like it when we do it. But who is he to complain, really? Uh, They create an entire, uh, you know, airplane company out of government largesse to compete with our private sector companies. Hmm. Uh, f- for years, the Europeans have been doing this, the French in particular. It's, it, to me, is not a really a legitimate complaint from our, from our very good ally in Paris. But they're going to they're gonna tweak this, though, to make sure that everyone's included. I guess we included, Jeannie, the language, uh, free trade partners, so as to not have China, for instance, get involved. Uh, but they didn't mean to exclude the, the, the Europeans. How does this end? 
Well, it, you know, it is not sitting well with Macron and most Europeans. I mean, to the, to your point, he described it at one point as super aggressive, yeah. and he has said it will kill a lot of jobs in Europe, and it has to be synchronized. And to Lester's point, they're talking about you know, adopting by Amer- by European provisions, right? They're saying, you're going to do this, we're going to do it back. So it's something that's going to have to be addressed. And we heard John Kirby say that they have every expectation. It came up in the meeting today and that they would continue to talk about it. But he is, I think, reflecting as his, you know, this leader of Europe now that he has become, this is the sentiment of the Europeans as they look at both the CHIPS Act and as they look at the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and what Joe Biden has been pushing, this, you know, build and buy in America. Yeah, it was interesting to hear from Emmanuel Macron on this issue. And a number of um, senators yesterday like, said it was certainly not their intention. So France um, simply did not come to ask for an exemption or another for, for our economy, but simply to discuss the consequences of this legislation. What do you make of that comment, Leslie? Hey, we didn't come here, you know, for you guys to change it. We, we just wanted to talk this out. Well, I, you know, this is this is inevitable when the government gets in the business of supporting one certain part of industry vice another part of industry. When we when we move too far away from a free market, we're, we're going to have issues like this. This is the conundrum of centrally managed economies. This is very small compared to what a, a country like China is confronting, uh, which is why they're running into a buzzsaw right now. So. I think that my uh, old school Republican lesson from all of this is, boy, we should really hesitate before we do any kind of industrial subsidies, however we do them. We, it should only be of the last resort yep. uh, because there are so many unintended consequences of them. And then you get into this micromanagement, which is which is never going to work out terrifically. Yeah. Lester and Jeannie, stay where you are as we turn to the rail strike. It's not happening. And it's un om et un fem. This is Bloomberg. A bill to avert a rail strike by essentially forcing workers to accept the labor deal already on the table passed the Senate easily today. The second bill, though, that we talked about yesterday to give workers seven days paid sick leave up from one. Nah. On this vote, the yeas are 52, the nays are 43 under the previous order requiring 60 votes for the adoption For the adoption of this concurrent resolution, the concurrent resolution is not agreed to. And so it goes. Senator Bernie Sanders among those outraged. There's no clearer example of corporate greed than what we see in the rail industry today. In the last year, that industry earned $21 billion in profit, record-breaking, provided $25 billion in stock buybacks and dividends, to their wealthy shareholders. And yet today in that injury, workers who do difficult and dangerous work have zero paid sick days. Zero. You get sick, you got a mark against you, a couple of marks, you get fired. But it did fail anyway. There was some thought that enough Republicans might line up to support this thing. Emily Wilkins is with us now, Bloomberg government's congressional correspondent and a friend of the family here, of course, at Bloomberg Sound On. So we got one done here. The president today indicating, Emily, that he's not done fighting for paid sick leave. But that's not going to happen anytime soon for these workers, is it? It doesn't look like it, Joe. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that they just did not have the amount of votes that they needed to increase it. And a lot of senators and uh, 
members of Congress, a lot of Democrats who paint themselves as really strong supporters of unions and labor said, look, uh, on the balance, we would love to give them more sick days, but we cannot afford a shutdown of rail in this country at this point with inflation being the way it is. And at the end of the day, a lot of folks kind of, you know, they were stuck in between a rock and a hard place and they kind of swallowed swallowed the pill and and Mm -hmm. went ahead and voted to make sure that the strike didn't happen. You did, interestingly enough, see some odd bedfellows on that vote, though, to give workers seven paid sick days. Um, After you had Ted Cruz vote for the amendment, you had Bernie Sanders vote for the amendment. And apparently after uh, both of them had that vote, uh, they walked over to each other and gave them each other a fist bump. So (laughs) it was an interesting vote. Kind of shows you the... uh, the, the support and the empathy that there was toward workers yeah. on both sides of the aisle. Well, you know, on, on the flip uh, side of that, it, I understand that Joe Manchin was the lone Democrat that voted against paid sick leave. I just how does that play in a state like West Virginia, uh, where a lot of people don't have paid sick leave? It, it, I mean, it is a great question. It's kind of a great point that, you know, you have seen Manchin. Uh, vote for these bills or against these bills that a lot of people would argue, well, hey, this will this will help the folks in your state. This will help the folks in West Virginia. And when we uh, when reporters asked Manchin about it, basically, he went back to an argument we've heard him make so many times. He said he voted not to increase inflation, to not put hardships on the American public. Uh, he's concerned that, you know, if this rail did not get agreed to, uh, that there would be a, a, just a lot of trouble, a lot of layoffs, a lot of higher prices, people who couldn't get goods and just felt like at this point, too, that the Congress should not be getting involved in these union negotiations, that there was this thing that was negotiated between the unions um, and the rail workers and the White House that allowed for that single sick day. And he said, you know, we shouldn't be getting involved in this. Um, you know, I, I didn't we didn't want to go ahead and, and support those those seven additional yeah. days. Unreal. Well, at least we got beyond this. We'll see if they can figure out, you know, funding the government next. Emily, thanks. We miss you over here. It's great to have you back. Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg Government. I say I miss her. Everyone else sees her. She's just one of the busiest people here. Uh, We've got breaking news. Uh, Redhead on the terminal. Forget the special master. Trump special master review halted by court in Mar-a-Lago fight. If you listen to Sound On, you saw this coming. This appeals court. This is the 11th, right? vacating the appointment of a Trump special master. You know what that means. Number one, the DOJ can resume using the seized Mar-a-Lago records in their probe. They could also issue an indictment basically at any time now. Uh, Let's bring the panel back in. Jeannie Shanzano, we talked about this just a couple of days ago as we got the indication that this appeals court uh, could move on this. What does it mean for a now active presidential candidate? You know, this is a big win for the DOJ. It really puts their case and their ability to investigate and potentially, if they want to, file charges against the former president, they're able to do that. They're no longer going to be delayed by the special master. That's what they were seeking. And again, as we talked about, it's not really a surprise when you listen to what the court in that 11th Circuit hearing was saying. You had three GOP-appointed judges, two appointed by Trump, and they just lambasted Trump's lawyers over and over again. It's not a surprise that they he lost this that the trump team lost this but it is a big win for the doj as they move forward on this investigation does this department of justice lester uh, have the the stomach to indict a former president and active candidate for re-election well you know i i i do wonder that i think to some extent 
they've got to decide that now, right? Are they going to, because this drip, drip, drip of uh, what seemed to be very, re, you know, uh, legitimate concerns about the former president's behavior uh, in some ways makes him more relevant inside the Republican Party. He's seen as a victim of the Biden administration. So unless they're going to prosecute him and win, I'm not sure they should be doing what they're doing. Uh, and they should be making that. I presume they have made that decision that they are willing to go ahead and prosecute him mm -hmm. uh, already. Otherwise, they wouldn't be going through this process, which which only emboldens him. Well, I'll tell you what, though, I mean, you, it, when, when it comes specifically to the documents case, Lester, it's pretty hard to argue with the evidence we understand that they have. And I suspect they have a lot more than we know about. That's that's true. Uh, but of course, the devil's in the details in terms of. How, how they're going to adjudicate this uh, from a prosecutorial sense. Are they, are they going to go after Trump himself? Is there someone else? Uh, what kind of uh, penalties would they be seeking for what kind of malfeasance? I mean, that, that, those details really matter here. And the idea of just kind of throwing the book at them and going for the maximum punishment because this is offensive to so many people, and it is offensive. Wow. Uh, I'm not sure is the best way to handle a former president. They need to yeah. be very clear-eyed about what the implications are of their actions. Instant analysis from Jeannie and Lester. Indeed, Trump's special master review halted. There are no days off in Washington anymore. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's turned into quite a day for the former president as a federal appeals court. This just breaking in the last couple of minutes, ordering an end to the special master review. The records from Mar-a-Lago, the top secret records which could soon free the Justice Department 
to resume using the documents in his criminal investigation and may well usher in an indictment. That's not the only thing that's happened in Trump world today. As earlier, the Treasury Department turned over the tax returns. Couldn't believe it. Treasury Department turning over six years of Trump's tax returns to the Ways and Means Committee. Remember, the Supreme Court cleared the way for their release just recently. Treasury complied. So it's not Donald Trump putting that in the mail or his accountant. No, the Treasury sent that over. And no one seems to know what happens next. Even the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, asked about it today. Don't know. I don't know what they intend to do. I'd like to know, just as you would like to know. Yeah. I don't like it. it but, but I think that I uh, give credit to uh, Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal. He handled this with dignity. Okay, but let's just push this a little bit further, because either we're going to hear about this by way of leaks or there's going to be some level of public release. Here again is the speaker. I think the public has a right to know. That's why we should pass legislation requiring candidates to do that. That's why every other candidate has, except you know who, and uh, who shall remain nameless here. Uh, But, but, um, (laughs) yeah, so I, I would hope... Uh, that the public would have the opportunity to see. Okay. Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson are our panel today, and I want to hear from both of you on this. Uh, Lester, you were, of course, a creature of Capitol Hill for some time. The Ways and Means Committee gets six years of tax returns. How long before they're in the media? Oh, I'm surprised we haven't seen them yet. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's... Um, it's, it's impressive uh, information security they've demonstrated thus far. Uh, but look, the, the point of those tax returns isn't so that Richie Neal can see them or the staff can see them or some other member can see them. I, it's so the American people, through their elected representatives, can take a look at, at uh, the president's, uh, former president's tax returns. I'm not sure that's it's a great idea to do it this way, to be totally honest. Uh, I think everyone knows he's hiding something and there should be consequences for that. I'm a little, this seems a little too political to me, but at the end of the day, this is what's happened. And the point is so people can see them. So let's, let's see them. Do you feel the same way, Jeannie? Well, you know, they, they got them after, what, three years, and they now have about three weeks, and you have to That's question what, what they're going to do with them. Are they going to put out a report? You know, I'm hard-pressed to imagine how they can get that out so fast. They might. The and justification, if, again, by the way, was to write legislation, right? So maybe— well, and they're not going to get that passed, to your point, in the next three weeks. That's right. They won't get legislation written. They certainly won't get it passed, and they won't get it passed next year in the new Congress. But that is the point of getting them, and, and that is, I think, something we should all be thinking about. Forget Donald Trump, whether he lied about how much he was worth or he didn't pay taxes. He is sort of beside the point, as Nancy Pelosi said, he who should not be named. The real re- issue is, should we require <laughs> presidential candidates to you know, release their tax information. Similarly, questions, by the way, have been asked about president's health as we look about, you know, potentially two leading candidates who are in their 80s. Should they be required to issue issue medical records? And, you know, I'm not taking a position on that, but those are serious questions for the American Mm -hmm. public. We have an interest in knowing this uh, information, whether we should or not. Congress should debate. And I'm, you know, it's a bit frustrating. They won't, but I don't think they'll do it in the new Congress. What's your thought here, Lester? Does does Donald Trump not want people to see the tax returns because they don't, he doesn't want them to see that he's not paying taxes or he doesn't want people to realize that he's not as rich as he claims? 
I don't know. <laughs> it could be both of those things. It could be yeah. other things. It could be the the things that he makes money from. It could be who's paying him. There's, you know, there's an almost an infinite number of possibilities that he might be embarrassed by. I, I do want to disagree with Jeannie on one thing. I think this is all about Donald Trump. This is not about public disclosure. This is this has been personal for him. This is uh, Democrats can't not do this. They are so opposed to everything he is and stands for. But what if Ron DeSantis said, "To hell with it, then I'm not going to I'm not going to give you my tax returns either." He set a precedent. Look, there's there's no there's no requirement that politicians turn these things over. There's no legal requirement. There's no constitutional requirement. We can have a president who doesn't disclose. Well, that's that's fine. There isn't one. The idea that you're uh, the, the voters ought to be able to judge for themselves. If this person isn't going to show me their tax returns, I won't vote for them. That's a perfectly legitimate approach. They did chose not to take that approach. So I I do think this this is this is a very personal thing. Yes, there are some other issues involved, but at the end of the day, this whole move was personal to Donald Trump. You disagree with that, Jeannie? You're you're the one who brought it up. No, you know, I don't disagree. I wasn't suggesting that Democrats were coming out, you know, in some apolitical way and that this would never Is that a problem if it's about Donald Trump? Or is that exactly what should happen because of Donald Trump? My point is that oftentimes rules and laws are made on the backs of people who aren't so good and aren't so nice, as one of our Supreme Court justices said. Hmm. And in this case, Donald Trump refused to share his taxes. He was under no compunction, too. There's no law. And he did win once, and then he lost once. But what I would like to see is Republicans and Democrats having a real discussion, as Lester was just talking about. He may have a different view than me, but having a real discussion about is this the way we want our elections to be run for the person who's going to be elected president of the United States? Let's have that discussion. And my concern is we're not going to have that. And of course, it's because of politics, but we won't have that in the new Congress. And I think we should. And I also, by the way, think it again about health records as well. Lester Munson and Jeannie Shanzano, our panel today with one more for you. We talked about Ted Cruz a little bit earlier as he shared a stage, if you will, the public stage with Bernie Sanders and voted for the sick leave. He was not on the side of most lawmakers, however, when he got on stage yesterday to warn uh, that or threaten to block the National Defense Authorization Act, defense funding, Pentagon funding. If they did not allow for a floor vote, On their proposal, Rand Paul was with him as well, a bill to end the COVID vaccination mandate for service members. And his rationale was something. One of the reasons I believe that President Biden and Vice President Harris are pushing through this policy is that I believe they're doing this as an effort to purge from the military conservatives. Purge from the military people who don't agree with their political agenda. I think they're using it as an excuse from the enlisted level all the way up to the majors and colonels to the top brass. Okay. The reaction uh, came pretty swiftly from the Pentagon. Brigadier General Patrick Ryder's uh, spokesman for the Pentagon. We are a warfighting organization, so the health and readiness of our force is always going to be paramount to ensure that our forces are ready and able to conduct their mission. So... Um, vaccinations, whether it's COVID, influenza, anthrax, those kinds of things, we're going to ensure that our forces are properly vaccinated to be able to carry out their wartime mission. Is this a real debate, Lester? I mean, they're, they're threatening to slow walk or delay the NDAA with this. 
But are we really still going to have this debate at this point of the game here with COVID? Well, I think it's mostly performative. Uh, but if, at the end of the day, if they're just asking for a vote on the floor for a bill, mm-hmm. give them give them the vote. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in that. The logic of what they're doing of trying to undermine military leadership and look like they're in favor of of the troops is mm-hmm. similar to what they're doing on the railroad strike. Some some Republicans and a lot of Democrats where they want to uh say they're for the workers and not for management so i mean like this is a little bit of a piece with the railroad uh situation as well i'm uh and i think we're taking the anti-elite thing a little too far business (laughs) management is okay military officers and leadership are just fine with me Uh, i'm not really sure why we're going this far on the argument pretty incredible here and we're talking about funding the military genie and and they need a a lot of specifics in this new uh, ndaa because of Ukraine, because of a lot of other matters, and we're going to slow walk this over a vaccine? Yeah, and you know, it also reminds me of Jim Jordan's, uh, you know, real tense interactions, more than tense, with the FBI, where he has been accusing, in writing, the FBI of purging conservative employees from the FBI, and Mm. they have recently, I think it was yesterday, the day before, shot back and finally responded in writing, which I think is a precursor of what we're going to see in the new Congress as they investigate that, and this is a sort of similar idea that, you know, they are, uh, the, the military is somehow trying to purge conservatives from its ranks. So I think this is part and parcel of, you know, this sort of play to the base that these senators and representatives on the Republican side feel that they were making, regardless of the fact that in the case of, you know, the NDAA, it puts us all at risk. And we're talking about the U.S. military on the one hand and the FBI on the other. Let me guess, Lester, they're leaving the military and joining Twitter. (laughs) You don't have to react. <laughs> Thank you for having That's a laugh with me. Lester Munson, Jeannie Shanzano, great panel, great conversation. Good Lord, what a day again. And I'll leave you with this dessert at the state dinner that's just about to get underway tonight. Which would you pick? The orange chiffon cake? The roasted pears with citrus sauce? Or the creme fraiche ice cream? Is there an all of the above? We'll meet you back here tomorrow, the Friday edition of the Fastest Hour in Politics. Our signature panel will be with us. I'm Joe Matthew. I'll see you then. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.